0: Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Great God, we come before you now asking that you would continue to meet us in prayer. Father, we thank you how you have already shown up in the service. We pray, God, that you would continue to prick and uh, encourage our hearts in the hope of the gospel. Father, we pray first and foremost for those who are hurting among us. We pray for Mary Boyd now, God, who's in the hospital now. We pray, God, that you would just give the doctors wisdom as as they care for her. Father, whatever mass this is in her chest, we pray, God, that you would give, give the doctors clarity on what's specifically wrong with her. God, we thank you so much for how you have been with, uh, so many of our dear saints throughout the years, God, we pray that you would just be with all our, our widows and widowers, God, as loneliness tends to, uh, to creep up. Uh, we pray, God, that you would just remind them of your presence, that they would make you feel your presence in a very real and powerful way. Father, we pray for all our, our, our summer missions, God. We thank you so much for getting so many of our students uh, to go to the nations, Father. We pray that you would just meet their needs, Father for all the financial needs that they have, all the the prayer needs, the people who are going to be praying for them. I pray, God, that you would specifically meet all their needs, God, that even now you'd be preparing the hearts of the people that they would meet, Uh, God, whether it's Egypt or Bulgaria or Mexico, God, that people there would hear and believe the gospel uh, from the prayers we're praying now together as a congregation. Father, we pray for uh, those leaders in our nation. We pray specifically today for our Congress. Uh, for the senators and uh, representatives that represent all uh, folks in our nation. God, we pray that you would give them wisdom, Father. We pray that you would give them humility as they gather, Lord, that they would not try to work on their own agenda, but, God, that they would work on your agenda. We pray that that House and Senate would be a place of a prayer. So, God, we pray that your, your name would reign in those hearts. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our community. We pray this morning for uh, Sam Stevens and New Kirk Baptist Church. We thank you so much for uh, Sam and his, his desire to have your word preached and that church to live on mission. We pray, God, in your kindness that you would just grow that congregation more and more into your likeness, mold them and shape them by your word. Father, now as we open up the word of God ourselves, we pray that you would exalt your name, that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high this morning. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that the, the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, O oh God, would be pleasing in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. God, I pray for the people that you've given me to shepherd and pastor. I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled with this opportunity every week to share God's word. I pray, Lord, today that you would soften their hearts. God, you know every every everything that needs to be said and everything that needs to be heard. So, Father, as the Word of God is preached, I pray that you would apply it by the power of your Holy Spirit individually and specifically to each heart here. I pray that you would comfort. I pray that you would convict. I pray that you would help people see how we are called to live, how we are called to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. So, Father, we pray that you would make much of this hour, God, remove the distractions from our minds and from this room and allow us to to think solely, solely, I'm a great God that we serve. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. The unemployment rate uh, is a political marker for success. Presidents are always judged on the rise and the fall of the unemployment rates in our country. Uh, the creation of new jobs are, is essential for future stability of, of our country. Uh, Every year, over 2 million degrees are awarded to bright-eyed college students looking for work. In a job opening, an employer lists a number of preferred qualifications for the applicant, but then they list a, a, a list of minimum requirements. Most jobs require a minimum level of experience or education to make the employees viable for their company. Now, minimum requirements are something that we all face every day. Whether it's minimum requirements for filing taxes, changing our address, or getting car insurance, we're all very familiar with the minimum standards and necessary requirements to live in America. It's fascinating to me how we are so familiar with requirements in the natural world and do not understand the requirements of the spiritual world. Does God have any requirements of his people? What does he require? Does God have expectations and standards that he wants his people to fulfill? Does he have a minimum requirement to uh, to have effective employment in his kingdom? As we continue to look at the minor prophets, we come to Micah with that question. What does the Lord require? The minor prophets... Are, or the book of 12, are short books that speak to eternal things. Micah prophesied uh, for about 20 to 25 years into the kingdom of Judah in 8th century B.C., uh, before and a little bit during the exile. Uh, the book begins with the word of the Lord coming to Micah in one. Micah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moriseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We should never forget, never forsake the fact that God speaks to his people. He is a a personal, intimate God. He speaks. And because he speaks, we would be wise to listen. So when God sets forth proclamation in his word, we should be ready and, and willing to submit to the Lord's word. So we look at that question this morning, what does the Lord require? I think there's three things that we can see throughout this book that the Lord requires. Number one, the Lord requires the discipline of sin. The Lord requires the discipline of sin. The book opens with a pronouncement of judgment against Israel and Jerusalem for the sins of the people. If you're reading through the Minor Prophets, you'll find that most of the the, the books begin with a pronouncement of judgment. Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear God's word. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth. All that is in it, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his, his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. From from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and for the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Stunning words, destruction is coming upon God's people. Why? Because of their spiritual apostasy. They have turned away from trusting solely in the Lord God, and they have chased, they have run after idols. The reason in this time in Israel's history for this rampant idolatry rests really on the the shoulders of leaders. The leadership of of Israel was awful during these days. They disregarded God's word and led people into sin. Rather than led them to the Lord, they actually led them towards sin. Spiritual leadership is crucial to the spiritual health of God's people. All throughout Scripture, leaders have been encouraged to either encourage righteousness or wickedness. We've seen this clearly in the book of First uh, and Second Kings. As each king is announced, it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. As leaders go, so goes the people. And the leaders in Judah committed grievous sins. Go to chapter 3 of Micah. God's word says, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, and the rulers of the house of Israel? Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Hear this, verse 9, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, you who detest Justice And make crooked all that is straight, who builds Zion with blood, and with Jerusalem, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No, disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain a house of wooden height. God will bring judgment on nations because of poor leadership. The key of the leader's heart is exposed there in verse 2. They 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 hate they hate the good and love that which is evil. See, God is not merely concerned with your outward actions. He wants your loves. He wants your heart. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Not just what you do, but do you love internally the Lord God with everything? God despised the wicked heart among his leaders. Leaders in the government should also be those who who seek what is good and not what is evil. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. The Bible says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor or as supreme or the governors sent by him to what? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Very succinct role of government right there. Punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. See, the leaders in Juno were actually punishing those who were doing good and, and praising those who were doing evil. Beloved, we need to pray for our leaders. Pray for your president. Pray for his cabinet. Pray for our our Supreme Court and Congress. Pray for our local leaders, our city council, our mayor, those who are in charge of our school system, principals. Pray for our fire department and our our policemen. Pray that they would love the Lord by praising those who do good and punishing those who do evil. We also need to pray for our, our church leaders. You know, leadership can be taxing and emotionally exhausting. Leaders influence the direction of God's people Therefore, one of the reasons I believe so strongly in the plurality of pastors is to protect the purity of the church. There is strength and wisdom in numbers. Spiritual leadership is vital for the health of a congregation. So if we are going to be a healthy reflection of God's glory, we must have a healthy leadership. And in the Bible, every church that is mentioned has a plurality of pastors. It is not wise for a pastor or fruitful for a church for one man to bear the spiritual weight of a congregation. God has ordained a plurality of pastors for the local church so that pastors and a church would be protected from sin. Just imagine out in the field, and you see you're at the bottom of a giant hill, and there's a bunch of, of sheep. And it's the, it's the job of the shepherd to take all these sheep and get them through a small gate uh, at, at the top. And he looks, the shepherd looks over to the left, and they see a, a sheep kind of going astray. So the, pat, the sheep goes over there and looks for the wayward sheep. And as he's doing that, he looks over to his left, and he sees one caught in a, in a bush who's stuck. And as he's going back to get the one that's caught in the bush, he looks up and he sees a pack of wolves off in the distance who could come and devour the sheep. Now imagine that, that same scenario, and instead of just one man looking over all those sheep, but you had four or five or six, or seven, looking out after all these sheep. They're going to get better care. The plurality of leadership is not merely a good idea. It is a God idea. From Moses choosing men to be responsible for for groups of people, to Jesus choosing 12 to be leaders, or in the local church all throughout the, the, the New Testament, to have a plurality of pastors shepherding God's people. The purpose was designed by God to to, to best protect and care for his people. The leaders in Micah's day did not lead the people towards God, but away from him. Beloved, we need to pray that God would be gracious to us, that he would give us leaders to lead the people in the way of righteousness, so that people would not drift into sin, not be caught in the thicket, but they would experience righteousness. We see here in the book of Micah that the Lord brought judgment against Judah as a discipline, as an act of love. Discipline is a gracious gift from God. He disciplines because He wants to show that he, he wants us to delight in righteousness and truth. And even though His discipline shows He loves His people, God does not want His people to stay in their sin or face future judgment. But He requires us to be delivered. From it and experience mercy. Number two, the Lord requires the deliverance of sin. So He will deal with sin and discipline, but He wants us to be delivered from it. God's Word always reveals God's character. And as you read this book, there are many harsh judgments against Israel. But Micah closes this book with a way that reveals the tender love and mercy of our God. I read it as I open. Look again in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old, these three verses are just packed with promises that God has given us to to truly show how special and amazing He is. Even the name Micah; His name literally means "Who is like Yahweh?" Who is like our God? He does not retain His anger forever, but he, He He delights in steadfast love, and He will take all our sin. Hear that word all our sin, and cast it into the depths of the sea, meaning he will remove it all. A great picture of how God loves his people. He will show compassion on us. He will show his compassion to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to Jacob, as we see in the Old Testament, that he will bless all the nations of the earth. Now, we know in this time that that he does that through Jesus Christ. The Lord requires us to be delivered from our sin. He wants us to repent and turn away from that sin, but we are unable to bring about our own deliverance. As much as you hear from certain religious sects, you are unable to bring about your own deliverance because of your good works. It doesn't matter how much good you do, that will not bring your own deliverance. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Things that are dead cannot bring life. There's no power to bring life that which is dead. They're incapacitated and lifeless. If we're going to turn to the Lord, our sin has to be dealt with. So God, in His infinite mercy and grace, in His compassion, He sent Jesus Christ to deal with our sin. He dealt with our sin by absorbing our sin on the cross. He suffered for all our sins. And not just the little ones, the most heinous and grievous sins Christ died for. He paid the penalty in full so that through Christ all our sins would be cast into the depths of the sea where we will never bear them again. All those who who trust the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ did not only die, but he was raised from the dead, and God exalted him to the highest place and and placed everything under his feet. So now, for anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him, hear me, beloved, anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him, he will deliver you from your sin, ultimately and present tense now. Whatever sin you are currently dealing with, if you repent today and turn to Christ, he will deliver you from it. Because he will give the the Holy Spirit that that will be planted in your heart and it will grow exponentially in time to drive out the sin of your life. And we we know this promise is is fulfilled in Christ because of a prophecy we see here in Micah. Micah chapter 5 says the Messiah will become from Bethlehem, the smallest of clans. The word smallest here in Micah 5 really means trifling, the trifling clan of Bethlehem. We'll read Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the end of the earth and he shall be their peace god requires deliverance from sin and the lord gives that deliverance who is like our god who makes demands of us and then meets those demands for us we have peace with god because christ came from Bethlehem to stand and shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The deliverance that God gives through Christ is pictured not only in individual salvation, but in the gathering of all God's people together in glory. We even see that prophesied in this book. Micah chapter 2, 12 and 13. God's word says, I will surely assemble all of you. Let me make a stop for a moment here. The reason why you go to church on Sunday is to reflect this reality. People who say, I, I'm, I could be a Christian and not go to church, they're forgetting the reality that we're called, called to proclaim in our gathering. We are the assembly of the Lord right now. We don't go to church. We are the church. And you can't be the church in the assembly if you don't assemble. It is vital to us Picturing the the end time reality of God gathering all the the Christians throughout the ages together around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's prophesied again and again. God is not about the individual salvation of souls. He's about the gathering and the making of a people for himself who are zealous for good works. Do not forsake the gathering together of the saints of God. And now we're back. I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in the pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by them. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. And Micah, chapter 4, verse 1, the mountain of the Lord, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established, As the highest of the mountains, it shall be lifted up above the hills. The people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, No more war. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples, all the peoples, walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Beloved, one day God is going to gather all his people, assembly, assembled in glory, and he will reign forevermore, and we will experience the pleasures of his right hand. Through all eternity. It's a great promise. So how, so what does the Lord require for us to be part of that assembly? To be part of that that gathering? How will we know that we will be assembled or gathered with him? The last point. The Lord requires the departure of sin. The Lord requires the departure of sin. Beloved, we all know right from wrong. We have the moral law that has been written upon our hearts, pricking our conscience when we sin against God or against others. Uh, Many try to insinuate that it is impossible to know God's will and what he requires of us, but we know clearly in his word that God is, is knowable. The Bible paints a very real picture that the problem with humanity is not that humanity does not know what the Lord requires, but that they don't desire to do what the Lord requires. There's something deficient in our, in our hearts. So Micah, chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. This is a verse we're often quoted, but what, what Micah's doing here, he's rebuking the leaders and the people of Israel because outwardly they're looking like they, they, they're following God in their worship. This is more their worship in the temple. But in their lives, they're far from God. Even what we saw with Stephen read in Matthew 23, about the scribes and the Pharisees. Hear God's word, Micah chapter 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams and with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my Lord? This is the spiritual, the ritualistic acts of worship. So in in modern day context, is God going to be pleased with you showing up merely at church on Sunday? Is God going to be pleased merely you giving your money unto Him? Yes, those things are important, but if you do that only out of, out of, um, external, um, desire so others can see you, not out of a desire from the heart, this is what God, God would not be pleased. This is what God requires. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We are clearly told what God wants us to do, and how God wants us to to live, to to, to do justice, to love kindness, or in many translations, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He does not want mere external obedience like the Pharisees, who were were tithing even on on their spices, and yet they neglected the weightier matters of the law, and love, and mercy, and faithfulness. So three things that God says here. Number one, we want to do justice. A believer departs from sin. We want to do justice. We want to fight for what is right and what is honorable. We hate what is evil and we love that which is good. We defend the cause of widows and orphans. We love the poor and the downtrodden. We speak up for the unborn. One of the best ways that I have seen... That doing justice displayed in the life of our congregation is how family members care for for their aging parents. How you sacrifice your time and your energy to care for the widows and orphans or the widows and widowers of our church. You know, by God's grace, I have not yet had to walk that road, but I have witnessed it. What a picture of, of a heart of justice to care for those who cannot care for themselves. If you need an example of someone who who does justice, we don't have to look any farther than the Lord Jesus. Jesus cared for unwanted children. Jesus healed the broken. Jesus had compassion on the lost. Jesus always did what was right. We are called to love justice and do right from the heart. Number two, we're called to love kindness. Thomas Hobbes wrote in his seminal work, The Leviathan, in the 18th century, so often... The life of a man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And I think so often that's how many view life, as this dark, bleak existence. And we see pictures of that all over our society. But, beloved, we are called to be rays of light. We must cherish and treasure kindness. When was the last time your heart just rejoiced in seeing kindness? That God, the kindness that God has shown you in your own life. Or maybe the kindness that God has shown in our community. Just looked around and say, Man, God has been so kind to our church in giving us this person or this family or these words, this music. But God is so kind to us. He is so kind. As I said before, kindness is often translated as mercy. And mercy is showing compassion. Is defined as showing compassion and forgiveness towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish and harm. God had every right to punish us for our rebellion, but chose in Christ to deal with our sins, to cast our sins to the depths of the sea. If God has done that for us, we should also do that for others. It was said after General Lee's uh, surrender that uh, President Lincoln gathered a group of Uh, folks off the balcony of the White House and started talking about his plans uh, for the South. And and an Iowa senator named James Harlan shouted out, what shall we do with those rebels? The crowd instantly started shouting, hang them, hang them. Lincoln's then 11-year-old son, Tad, uh, looked at him and said, no, Papa, not hang them but hang on to them. Lincoln said, that has it. We must hang on to them. Well, that is exactly what God has done to us. We were rebels and deserving to be hung. And God chose to hang on to us. And if Christ has done that for us, we also should do that for others. When you don't show mercy to others, when you don't show kindness to others, you have forgotten the mercy and the kindness that God has shown you. Think much about the gospel of Christ. Lastly, we walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. When you are walking with God, you are not walking towards sin. That's important. When you're walking with God, you're not walking towards sin. Humility and abiding in God's word are kind of weaved together like grace and mercy. They're intimately connected. Humility is that disposition of of, of constant need. We do not try to leave God's hand because we know that we are. if we're ever in need, his presence is right there. We never need to look any, any farther for true humility than the Lord Christ himself. Philippians 2, 5 and 8, it says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does the Lord require of you? He requires you to die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You must die to live. Jesus didn't just humble himself to death, but was raised unto life by the power of the Spirit of God. The Lord requires you to walk in the footsteps of Christ in the power of the resurrection. You need to walk humbly with God like Christ. You walk like Jesus as you walk with Jesus. God invites you to depart from your sin by walking humbly with God by walking with Christ. How can we who have died to sin, Paul says, continue to live in it? What does God require? He requires obedience to his revealed will. I don't have time to unpack this, right? But there are so many problems in the evangelical church with not understanding this concept. There are going to be a lot of people on the last day that Jesus Christ is going to look at and say, away from me, evildoer, you worker of lawlessness, I never knew you. Because people profess they know Christ, but they don't actually love Jesus from the heart because their lives have never really been changed. Jesus said in John 14:15, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." A lover of God obeys God's word. God requires obedience, but not outward, that outward obedience does not save you. Let me close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon about the danger of an outward change that represents a new heart. Spurgeon writes these words, "A wolf may be scared From his prey, yet he keeps his ravenous nature. He has not lost his taste for lambs, though he is obliged to drop the one which he has seized, just so a sinner may be forced to forego his beloved lust, and yet remain as truly as a sinner as before. The fear of hell whips off some of his favorite vice, and yet his heart pines for it, and in imagination he nourishes it. In the sight of God, each man is as his heart is. Yet nothing is done which will effectively change the wolf or renew the ungodly heart. You must be born again. This is the only effectual cure for sin. While the nature is unchanged, it is but the outside of the cup and the platter that is washed. Truth in the inward parts is what God desires. Until that is given, we remain under divine wrath. A scare is not conversion. And beloved, I tell you what, there's a lot of people who are scared into conversion in their minds. But they have not experienced the new life of Christ. A sinner may be frightened into hypocrisy, but they must be wooed by God to repentance and faith. Divine love tames and divine grace transforms. May the God of all grace deal thus with each of us. So how do we do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with our God? We need a new heart and God promises to give a new heart if we turn from our sins and trust in him. If you have walked with Christ for a long time, but you are walking in sin today, repent today. Do not wait till next week. Do not wait till uh, years down the road. Repent today. When we turn to Christ, God credits Jesus' perfect record to us and gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to walk humbly with God. See, God requires perfect obedience, and he's offered that perfect obedience for us in Christ. Jesus perfectly loved justice, perfectly loved mercy, and walked humbly with God. So, beloved, may the God of mercy send his divine love to tame our sinful hearts and his divine grace to transform our sinful lives to be a reflection of his justice, his kindness, and his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help the people of Park Baptist Church to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. We pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.